Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. Last week was breaking news that the Supreme Court ruled on their Dobbs case. And in that case, they overturned Roe v. Wade, which meant that the regulation of abortion was sent back to the people and their elected state representatives to work out at the state level. It is no longer a matter of federal law that abortion is legal. It is now regulated on a state-by-state basis. And you know what? We've talked about abortion quite a bit on this show, and I've spoken with many women about the topic. I mean, please check out our past episodes to deal with abortion, where we spoke with Helen Alvarez, Erica Bakiaki, Gina Vides, and Kristen Day. But there's one thing in particular in these discussions around Roe being overturned that I've been thinking about for a while, and it's something I have seen for a long time in the discussion of why we need legalized abortion. People bring up poor Black women. And I think poor Black women have been used as mascots for the pro-abortion movement. And a lot of the arguments go like this. Well, look, rich white women can get abortions regardless of the law, but poor Black women cannot. And therefore, these poor Black women are deprived of a fundamental right to choose. And honestly, in thinking about Black women's history and thinking about Black women in general in our lives in this country, our history in this country, I have to say the framing of that is off. Why? Why is the framing off to me? I was like, well, has there ever been a time in the country where Black women have not struggled with pregnancy and parenting? No, never. And yet we still gave birth and reared children in the most dire circumstances. And I'm hoping that maybe now with Roe gone, we can focus on actually supporting Black women and realizing that the measure for what Black women need isn't the abortion that rich white women can get. The measure is all the basic needs that those rich white women take for granted. That's how we should be looking at the issue of what Black women fundamentally don't have access to. And I think it's important that we look at it holistically for Black women and not always try to run to abortion as a solution to the circumstances that they are in, if it's a matter of difficulty. I think we need a wholesale sea change on our attitudes about poverty and about motherhood and pregnancy and changing the culture to embrace and support everyone who is struggling in some way or another. Another thing I've been thinking a lot about is like, how do we talk to each other now that Roe is gone? I am hoping maybe some of us that were having these conversations before Roe, but like, how are we talking to our sons, our nephews, our grandsons, our brothers about the role men play in impregnating women and supporting these women and the children they help create? I mean, are we telling our sons, you know, especially our high school age sons, are we telling them you better not bring a baby in here? Or are we being very direct to say, if you get a girl pregnant, you're not killing my grandchild. And oh, by the way, you're not going to run off to college and leave her alone to take care of this baby. You're going to have to go to school part time and maybe do something else, get a job to help support this life, this grandchild of mine that you've helped create. How many of us are really being that direct with our boys? I'm sure parents are having the conversations all the time about with their girls, but what are we saying to our boys, to our men? 
And maybe I'm a radical, but I was happy when the HHS mandate allowed parents to keep their children on their insurance policies, health insurance policies, until they're 26. I'd like to see men continue their child support until their child is 26. I'd like to see men pay child support for the time that the child was in the womb. Are we having these discussions? Are we being creative with how we're called to love one another? And love doesn't mean walking away. Love means being more encumbered with the other, not less. More concerned with how the other person is doing, not less. And realizing that the demands of justice do impose an obligation on each and every person, right? And so if a woman is due, you know what I mean? What does she do when she's pregnant? What does she do when she's mothering? Well, whatever she's due is an obligation on the rest of us to help her provide. And yeah, so we aren't floating around here as these individual unattached beings that are free to do whatever we want. We are very much, if you look at, how God has made us. We are very much supposed to live in community with one another, loving one another, caring for one another. And that does mean we have obligations to the other person. Obligations is a matter of justice, but obligations, hopefully we see them as being the foundation of that is love for the other. So I'm hoping that we think about how we talk about the matter of abortion and sex and marriage and children post-Roe more broadly and more creatively than we have before. Let's dream and try to make those dreams a reality. And today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Cornell Brooks. And I feel like this discussion with him really is an extension of creating a culture of life. It isn't just about protecting the child in the womb and the child's mother. Yes, that's a part of it. But for people to live a life of dignity and to be respected is much broader. And so I talk with Cornell Brooks on some of those other issues that will help us create a culture of life in the United States. Cornell Brooks is a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School who teaches on nonprofit organization, public leadership, and social justice. Professor Brooks is also the former president and CEO of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. He's also a civil rights attorney and an ordained minister. I think it was really important to talk with Professor Brooks because of his professional background. He worked at the Department of Justice as an investigator with election fraud and many other things. And he has so much wisdom. And, you know, I talked with him. I was like, so what do you think the role of the church is in terms of social justice? And he had the most brilliant response. He said the church can show up as moral first responders or as funeral directors. And I think he's right on the money. And I also wanted to ask him a question that has been widely attributed to a very well-known pro-life activist. And the question I asked him, is it smart to pull Black men over because of statistics that seem to show that Black men have a high rate of criminality? Racial profiling, basically. I wanted to talk with him about that. And the answer he gives might surprise you. We also talk about the importance of democracy, and one of the fundamental things that each person in our democracy in the United States has is voting rights. We talk about that and the suppression of those rights. And he gives very specific examples that maybe you don't know, you've never heard of, or you can't believe would be occurring right now in 2022. So I think this conversation today with Cornell Brooks is timely and also hopefully helps us understand what it looks like to extend and create a culture of life. 
The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And that's okay. You know what? That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by signing up, subscribing to the podcast, and getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Professor Cornell Brooks is up next. Professor Brooks, thank you for joining me on the Gloria Purvis podcast. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate the work that you do, and it's a delight to be here. Well, let me tell you something. You have so many accomplishments. I mean, everything that you've done in civil rights, your educational background is amazing. But I have to say, when I saw that you two had South Carolina roots, I was like, what? (laughs) You know, also specifically from Georgetown. I have so much family Mm -hmm. in Georgetown. I was really curious with all that you've accomplished, you know. Was there anything in your childhood, whether it was negative or positive, that really shaped who you are today and gave you really that kind of tenacity to go forward with these kinds of issues? Sure. So just because a town is tiny (laughs) does not mean that it is not gigantic in terms of American history. Mm -hmm. So here's what I would note about our hometown, right? So it was back in the 1700s, the wealthiest corner of the United States because of the cultivation of rice by Black people. It was also, for me, the place in which my core values were formed. It was the place in which my grandfather, back in the 1940s, ran for Congress in a seat that James Clyburn now holds. It was a place in which I grew up in a little house on Prince Street two blocks away from where Joseph Rainey was born, Joseph Rainey being Congressman Rainey, who was the first African-American elected and seated in Congress and the longest serving during the period of Reconstruction. But it was also the place in which I learned a great many lessons about resilience, primarily because if you grew up in the bosom of the Black church and you see people of modest means and high aspiration who literally sent their children to school on pennies. Mm -hmm. So that tiny town looms large in my life because no matter where I've gone, from Jackson State to Boston University to Harvard to Yale, wherever I've gone in this country, that town has gone with me. Mm -hmm. And here's the other thing. Nobody from Georgetown is terribly impressed by anybody else (laughs) from Georgetown. You know, okay. (laughs) If we had to go there. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I spent so many summers and other days in Georgetown, just as you were talking about. I was like, oh, yeah. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I get it. You also are a fourth generation minister in your family. Can -hmm. you talk a little bit about the role of the church, specifically the AME? And for people who don't know what the AME is, African Methodist Episcopal Church, how that's impacted your life? Tremendously. So the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which is America's first African-American denomination, came into being not as a consequence of a doctrinal divide, 
mm-hmm. which is often the case. But it came into being because black people came together to stay in opposition to segregation in the church. So if you go back to 1787, a former slave by the name of Richard Allen was praying in St. George Episcopal Church in Philadelphia, which was then the capital of colonial America. He is literally pulled from his knees mm-hmm. in that church because he was black. He leaves the church with a group of black people to form not a church, but really a self-help organization mm. for black people, which eventually became a church. But they were assisted by two signers of the American Declaration of Independence. They had to file a law school. They had to engage in legislation in order to create a church. Now, why is that important? Because when you grow up in a church that was a literally a crucible, an incubator for social justice, Mm-hmm. You associate ministry with social justice. Yeah. So my grandfather was a minister in the AME church. My great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, mm. all ministers in the AME church. And if I'm going to be candid with everybody today, <laughs> being a minister was the last thing, the <laughs> very last thing that I wanted to be uh, growing up. But like a great many young people, I rebelled against mm. what I thought was the politically conservative folkways of the church. And so when I went off to college, I, I said, I'm going to become a lawyer. <laughs> I literally said, announced to my roommates that the black church was an anachronism. Oh my we need to get rid of worship on, <laughs> on Sunday mornings. We need to have lectures. All of those preachers who <laughs> were so old fashioned, so anachronistic, so politically backward, we should just get rid of it in total. Oh, so gosh. in the span of four years, I felt the call to ministry. Oh, wow. And as a consequence, all the things that I railed against (laughs) were the very things that God used to inspire me to try to be a good minister. All right. So the church was tremendously consequential in my life. But, you know, what I find interesting is you had the humility to go in and serve after you'd made those pronouncements to your, you know, your (laughs) friends in college. You had the humility to say, you know what? I'm going to be a minister. You know, that takes something, too. (laughs) <laughs> you know, thinking about undergrad, you know, when I was at undergrad at Cornell University, we used to have a bunch mm-hmm. of distinguished speakers across the political and ideological spectrum come to the university and speak. And one such speaker was the late Kwame Ture, who was formerly known as Stokely Carmichael. Mm-hmm. And I believe you, if I'm not mistaken, also attended a presentation by Mr. Ture while you were at Jackson State. Can you share oh, something about goodness. that presentation that Kwame Ture gave? Absolutely. And it's probably one of the most humbling events of my life. So as you may know, I, uh, parenthetically, since you went to Cornell, I'll, I'll note that my father named me after Cornell University because he attended South Carolina State College. Mm-hmm. His favorite professor got his PhD from Cornell. He liked the name, so that's how I got the name. Oh, but wow. when I was a freshman or, or sophomore at Jackson State University in HBCU in Mississippi, I found myself in an auditorium with several hundred students. And Kwame Ture, or Stokely Carmichael, as he was known in the 1960s, gave his speech. And the speech I remember less than the three questions he asked. The first of which is, how many of you believe in God? This being the Bible Belt, this being Jackson, Mississippi, whether you believe in God or not, people lie. Everybody (laughs) raised their hands and said, we all believe in God. And then he asked a related question. He said, how many of you read the Bible from cover to cover? And out of an audience of several hundred, no one raised their hand. Zero. Mm. Second question, how many of you 
believe that Martin Luther King was a great man. Everyone raised their hands. Then he asked, how many of you have read all of his books from cover to cover? No one. Last question. He asked, how many of you believe that America, generally speaking, is a good country? Everyone raised their hand out of some sense of patriotism. And then he asked, how many of you read the Constitution in its entirety, all the amendments, to which no one could answer in the affirmative and no one raised their hand? Wow. I walked out of that room profoundly embarrassed at my own ignorance. Mm -hmm. And I resolved to read the Bible from cover to cover, the Constitution in its entirety, and all the books of Martin Luther King. That set me on a path to being a civil rights lawyer and an ordained minister. Because when I read the Constitution, that gave me a sense of appreciation for due mm -hmm. process, for equal protection, for the 13th Amendment, freeing the slaves, 14th Amendment, granting them citizenship, the 15th Amendment, granting at least black men the right to vote. And reading the Bible gave me an appreciation for the black church, appreciation for my faith. And so I felt this call on my life to serve God and use law as a tool of ministry, which at that time was a radical proposition. And what I would say to any person wrestling with a call who are listening is that we're always looking for God's answers. Mm -hmm. So much so sometimes we ignore God's questions. Mm. And God's questions can come from all kinds of folk who may or may not believe as you believe, mm -hmm. right? So if God can use a donkey in the Bible to communicate to God's people, if he can use a prostitute to communicate to God's people, if he can use the disreputable and the disrespected, then he can use anybody and he can use questions, not merely answers. So what are some of the questions you think God is asking people? I think God is asking us in this time, how long will we ignore his voice in the cries of his people? Yeah. Right? So in other words, if I step over somebody in the gut, their groan, their cry may not sound like the voice of God at Mount Sinai or the, the voice of God in the desert when the wilderness. But how do I know it's any less real? This is true. And, you know, thinking with the murder of George Floyd, Mm -hmm. How the fact that it was a to me a watershed mm -hmm. moment in this time because a lot of right. things that the black community had been talking about the kind of abuses we experience was caught on tape, right. and everybody could see it right. Mm -hmm. And we saw at least in terms of uh, the Congress a renewed push for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act following his murder, right. but also there were numerous others who were injured or killed due to police brutality. Mm -hmm. To me, I'm like, if we're watching and we're listening to what God is asking us, I do think that has some impact on the kind of laws we decide we want to, or the kind of things that we decide we want to pass in this country. That's right. And I know some people might be like, what was the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act? Could you mm -hmm. talk about maybe what some of the key provisions are of this legislation? Sure. So let me just note, as a fourth-generation ordained minister, but also as a former federal civil prosecutor and a civil rights lawyer, Mm -hmm. that as a matter of faith, one of the supreme expressions of faith in the Christian scripture are the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Right? So in other words, God expresses a covenant with his people in the form of laws. So when you have people who say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't have anything to do with the law or policy. Right. Right? So let's not ignore the Hebrew scriptures in terms of the Ten Commandments. So in the present moment, we're grappling 
with one of those commandments in terms of thou shall not kill. So how do we translate thou shall not kill in the context of these ugly statistics? The leading cause or one of the leading causes of death among black men is police homicide. Like that's akin to cardiovascular disease or diabetes. So how do we come to grips with that in terms of laws in this multiracial democracy? So one of the things that people have responded to have been laws like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which does a number of things, which tries to do a number of things. The first of which is to do something about this notion of sovereign immunity, right? Mm-hmm. So in other words, if a police officer picks up Gloria Purvis on the street, mistreats you, accosts you, takes your life, what do your family members do? Well, in many jurisdictions all across the country, if someone takes your life and they wear a gold badge, a brass badge, and a blue uniform, you can't sue them and right. hold them accountable. So this law would make it easier for you to sue and hold people accountable. Critically important. This law would also change the standards for use of force, making it clear that you can't use deadly force willy-nilly, right? So in other words, if you jaywalk, should I have the right to take your life? Remember now, Michael Brown in Ferguson was not stopped because he was suspected of rape, robbery, or murder. He was stopped because of jaywalking. The George Floyd Act also endeavors to create a national database. How is it that people can engage in bad behavior in one town, abuse people's rights, and get a job in the next town? Yeah, yeah. Again, the George Floyd Act also endeavored to do something about no-knock warrants, right? Breonna Taylor lying in her bed or using choke holes and carotid holes, right? So in other words, we should not have our police officers using moves that we see in MMA, that is to say mixed martial arts, Mm -hmm. right? And so the point being here is public safety should still be public service. Or as I like to put it, black people need to be treated as subjects of protection, not objects of suspicion. So this legislation really tries to do a number of things, but it got stuck in Congress being criticized on the left and the right, right? Black Lives Matter activists rightly say, well, wait a minute. Eric Garner was killed, even though chokeholds were banned in New York. Yeah. On the right, you have police officers who say, well, you know, we want to hold on to this immunity, this shield of accountability. So what do you think might be a workable solution here? You know, what would be the next steps to try to get this thou shall not kill in terms of policing written into law? I think part of this has to do, we have to bring more economic leverage and pressure the problem. Because let's think about it this way. And I, I say this not as a matter of movement jealousy, but rather a movement lesson. When there have been states who pass anti-LGBTQ legislation, we've had corporate America say, you know what? We're not invest in your state if you discriminate against people based on them being gay. Mm-hmm. And we've seen states back down. With respect to policing in similar fashion, We need corporate America to say, you know what? We're not going to invest in your state if you mistreat people based on skin color. I'll give you a concrete example. Today is the day in which only a few years ago, nine students of scripture were killed in Mother Emanuel Church. 
I remember as president and CEO of the NAACP speaking to Governor Nikki Haley and saying that flag, that Confederate flag that inspired Dylan Roof to kill nine people has got to come down from the state capitol. She communicated to business leaders that and to the state legislature, you know what? It's not merely that we're going to suffer a boycott in terms of business coming into the state. We're going to lose the business we have in the state. Right. And so my point is, in order to pass this George Floyd Policing Act, we've got to have corporate America stand on the side of people. Plain and simple. We've got to continue to mass mobilize. We've got to hold people accountable because let me put it this way. Ask any of the people who listen to your podcast. How many of you have been profiled, put on the right. side of the road? Right. Let me put it this way. It's an open joke. I don't know of any black men no matter what credentials you think you have, no matter what make, model of car you drive, who've not been profiled, who've not been pulled over. Yeah. N- nobody. I mean, Rob Smith, billionaire Rob Smith, who gave all that money to the one graduating class right then in Atlanta, Morehouse. He openly talked about living in Texas and driving himself to the airport. He allots time because he knows he's going to be stopped by the police. Now, granted, you know, people are like, why would they do that? Well, because he's either driving a red Ferrari or a gold Rolls Royce. and He's a black man and people are like that doesn't look right, honestly. And he'll see he talks about that. And here's the thing. Let me know. This is not merely a matter of inconvenience. Yeah. It is life and death consequential. Right. So in other words, when I as a baby lawyer stopped in front of the U.S. Capitol, mm-hmm. as I reached for my eyeglasses, the police officer reaches for his gun. My point is, I don't know if I look threatening or suspicious. I don't think so. Maybe I'm biased. But here's what I do know. I am discernibly and phenotypically black. Yeah. And that alone means you're suspicious, and that alone means your life is in danger. Well, so let me just tell you some of the justifications I've heard from that. We actually had someone, rather public figure, layperson, say that the police would be smart if they basically profile her adopted black child because of statistics. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people say, well, don't the statistics show that Black people tend to be involved in a lot of crime, you know, involved in violent crime and murder and all these things. And therefore, given what the statistics say, doesn't it make sense for them to be policed differently, basically, is what I hear people say. Mm-hmm. That's a rather amusing argument. It's a tragically amusing argument. Here's why. Men commit the overwhelming yes, they, yes, y'all do. majority of not just sex crimes, but all violent crimes and all crime. So the most efficient thing to do with respect to crime is to literally lock up every man you see and we will bring crime to near zero in minutes. We as a free society decline to do that. It is a bridge too far. Mm-hmm. So what is true of men should also be true of black people irrespective of statistics. Yeah. Point two here is this. When we look at, for example, drug use in this country, what we know statistically is that irrespective of race and ethnicity, everybody uses drugs Mm -hmm. and sells drugs at about the same rate. Mm -hmm. But we prosecute, arrest, and punish Black people in far greater numbers. So part of the challenge here is whom you target represents whom you police and whom you punish. And when we ask ourselves, well... Who, by and large, is engaged in a high-level financial crime, insider trading? You might find a disproportionate number of white men with degrees from 
Harvard or Yale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have not heard anyone say we need to round up all the stockbrokers with Harvard MBAs. Yeah. I've not heard that. I'm waiting to hear that. Again, we understand in a democracy that we cannot operate on the basis of myth and stereotype. Right. That we operate on the basis of a constitution. We also operate on the basis of our values. Right. Right. And I keep thinking, I can't remember who said this. They said better that a hundred guilty men go free than one innocent man be denied his liberty. And yet somehow that seems to not apply to us. <laughs> you know, doesn't apply when it comes to black people. And I think that that's a big problem. Sure. Here's what I would note. If you consider yourself a fiscal conservative, right? Let us ask ourselves this question. If you're a fiscally conservative taxpayer, why would you want to spend millions literally billions of dollars on wasteful policing. Meaning, if we are harassing, profiling, and mistreating literally millions of innocent people based on stereotype, it's not merely morally offensive, it's economically wasteful. And I would say, if the average taxpayer were told, you know what, we're going to spend billions of dollars on Congress and allow them to do wasteful things every day, and then demand more money every year, I think most people would object to that. This is true. So you have some people who say, well, you know, policing is an anachronistic notion. We need to get rid of policing as it exists today and replace it with something different. But here's what I found. Get beyond the labels, right? You can say you're pro-police, somebody's anti-police. Well, let's look at what works. And here's what we know works is if we have the police do the things that they're qualified to do and get them out of the business of doing the things they're not qualified to do. So when someone's having a mental health crisis, do we dispatch the police like an occupying army or do we bring in social service professionals to respond to those kinds of needs? Mm. And what you find is there are places in the country which have cut crime by 60 to 70% by engaging people, not merely police officers. And do you think that's a part of building the trust in these communities of color? Absolutely. You know, there's studies that basically show when a person gets a ticket, studies show that people care less about getting the ticket than they care about, am I addressed in a respectful way? Yeah. Am I told why I'm being stopped? So dignity is really, really important. Meaning, do I assume that you're dangerous when I have no reason to leave you dangerous? We'll be right back. Well, since we're talking about dignity, you know, that makes me think about our participation in this democracy because each person that's a part of this country that's of a certain age is supposed to have the right to vote. Mm. And we as Catholics understand, you know, participation in the public square is important. We believe that. And I, I want you to help my listeners understand the state of voting rights today because sure. I see a lot of people believe that, you know, Everybody can vote that's supposed to vote. Mm -hmm. And then they hear people say voting rights are being suppressed Mm -hmm. and they have a hard time believing it. Could you help my listeners understand the context for when people talk about voting rights being suppressed? What is going on that maybe a lot of us don't know? Sure. Well, let's just start with something that would be very familiar to Catholic listeners. The notion of the Imago Dei. Yes. Each person is created in the image of God and as a consequence... Each person has a dignity. They have rights. Now, that's not only key to Catholic theology. It's also key to our democracy. Our Constitution is literally built 
on the Imago Dei, which is an enlightenment notion, which is a core principle of a Catholicism. So when we think about the right to vote being based upon each person having innate worth and value and dignity, that means everybody should have access to the right to vote. But what do we see? What do we see all across the country in terms of voter suppression? In Atlanta, in places across the South where polling places have been shut down. Well, you say, well, that's, that's just the government saving money. Well, what happens when polling places are shut down so that people have to travel miles and miles to vote? That's not merely inconvenient. What happens if you have a disability? Yeah. Hmm? What happens if the right to a mail-in ballot is constrained simply because of your color or being young? That's a tax placed on your time. What happens, another example, in Georgia? I think most of your listeners will find this difficult to believe. Let's say you're in Georgia and your name is Gloria Purpose. Mm -hmm. And there's somebody in prison with the name Gloria Purpose. You find out that you have been taken off the voting rolls. Why? Because there's somebody in prison with your name. Therefore, they're ineligible to vote because they are in prison. But because you have the same name, you are ineligible to vote. And you call your local voter registrar. This is a real case. Real cases, multiple, in Georgia. And they tell you, well, you go to the Department of Corrections and you clear this up. Oh, they you have to do it, not them. Okay. You have to do it. And not only that, each year you have to check whether or not you have been purged from the rolls. Oh, wow. And you have to do this year after year after year. It's almost like a life sentence of voter suppression. Yeah. Now, what I hear, uh, the arguments that people make for these restrictions are largely, we got to protect the integrity of elections. We got to avoid voter fraud. Is there any legitimacy to those arguments? Well, listen, let me be clear. I've been involved in the voting rights fight since graduating from law school. Mm -hmm. The right to vote is incredibly important to me. Yes. And having served in the Department of Justice, having investigated people, having conducted investigations, if there were any form of voter fraud, I'd be the first to say it should be investigated and prosecuted. But here's what we know statistically. Literally, out of hundreds and hundreds of millions of ballots cast, statistically speaking, there had literally been a handful of in-person voter fraud by voters. What we see is not voter fraud by voters. We see voter fraud by politicians. Politicians Mm. who literally have engaged in shenanigans to keep people from voting. So, uh, for example, mm. in the state of North Carolina, where a federal court says to politicians who said, you know what, when black people started registering to vote on Sundays, yeah, and the state legislature said, we got to roll that back. When they moved polling places, when they made it harder for people to vote based upon race, a federal court, a conservative federal court, said that the state of North Carolina was engaged in voter suppression with surgical precision. So statistically, I would say to all of your listeners, and I mean no hyperbole here, you're more likely to see the Easter Bunny standing next to Santa Claus at the voting booth to encounter an actual instance of voter fraud. Wow, that's that rare. Mm -hmm. What is the role, you think, of the church in tackling this issue of social justice? Like, what role can the church play here? The church represents the prophetic 
vanguard. The church in many ways represents the moral first responders. Moral first responders, beautiful. So when I led the NAACP, and even before that, when I was a civil prosecutor in the Justice Department, Mm -hmm. what I found in community after community, town after town, all across the country, was whenever you had an injustice, people of faith were always on the front lines. Yeah. How do you square that with, because especially, I would say, as of late, Christianity in one way, yes, being the moral first responders, but then you also see some Christians or Christianity being used to keep things as they are, to not actually agitate for justice. How do you make sense of that? You're precisely right. In many ways, people of faith can be the moral first responders. They can also be the funeral directors of a movement. Funeral directors. <laughs> True. Okay. All right. They can be the people who literally bury a movement. Yeah. But what I often say to people of faith is this. Read your Bible and read the newspaper and read history books. And what you never see are the status quo Christians ever being lifted up as moral examples. Mm, that's true. They're always embarrassed in hindsight. Amen to that. If you're ever confused about where you need to stand, look at your children. Young people never out there saying, you know what, we need to go back to where it was 30 <laughs> years ago. Right. We need to do exactly what we've been doing all along. They're all asking difficult questions, unsettling questions. Go to the Word. The first instance of Jesus' public ministry is not Jesus making grand proclamations. It's Jesus in the temple asking unsettling questions. So maybe what we need to do is start watching our young people, young people of faith, and listen to their questions. Because they're the ones who say, well, does it have to be this way? And so, you know, for those folk who are literally caught betwixt and between Do we want to be more first responders or should we be the funeral directors of a movement? Again, watch young people. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful way to put it. That's going to be playing on repeat in my head. Are you going to be a moral first responder or a funeral director? Now, remember Thomas, right? You know, Thomas is criticized for his doubt. Yeah. And the fact that he insists upon placing his hands on the body of Jesus in order to believe. But one part of that story that I think we undernote is the fact that the leadership of Jesus was both moral and physical. Yeah. In other words, there's a physicality to the sacrifice of Jesus. Yes. Right? So, when, you know, at the NAACP, we once did this march from Selma to D.C. for voting rights. And it was a thousand and three or four miles. We walked, mm-hmm. right? People had blisters on their feet. It was a, you know, 90 to 100 degrees. One of the things that I came to appreciate in the context of that march is people don't respect you unless your leadership has a physicality to it, unless you show up, unless you are present. That's right. So there's gotta be a there's gotta be an embodiment of our theology and the physicality to our theology and leadership. Amen. You preach the word. You preach the word. I feel like calling you Reverend. <laughs> Call you Professor. I know you also have the title of Reverend and you earn that. Yeah. You preach the word there. Thank you for that. Thank you for encouraging us to look at what we need to do in service of God as being coherent with Jesus Christ's witness when he was here. So yeah, that's a lot for us to think about. I'm so thankful you were able to join me on the Glory Purpose podcast. You really helped to enrich this conversation. I'm sure my listeners will be edified by it. Uh, Well, I'm just blessed to be here, blessed by your listeners. And I am convinced that 
pulpits aren't always in churches and they're always made of wood, right? Yeah. Pulpits can be in the digital space. Yeah. And pulpits are not places merely from which we preach, but also places from which we listen and engage and create discourse. So thank you for using your pulpit to reach people. Thank you. Oh, gosh. Thank you. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and, well, sometimes challenging conversations. As we near the end of our first podcast season, we would love to hear your feedback on the show. Please take a minute to chime in on our listener survey. We want to hear what you enjoyed, what challenged you, and what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. The link to the survey is in the show notes. And as always, if you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please share it with a friend or family member. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and it's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.